Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Before we get to this week's candid conversation with former Evergreen State College professor Brett Weinstein, I wanted to take a quick moment to reflect on last week's episode about the Great Firewall of China. I wish I could say that we timed the episode's release to coincide with the announcement from the Chinese Communist Party that it was abolishing presidential term limits and more or less allowing President Xi Jinping to become a dictator for life, but alas, we did not. The announcement came just three days after we released our podcast, and predictably, the Great Firewall of China was firing on all of its censorship cylinders. According to reports, terms like My Emperor and Lifelong Control were banned from Chinese social media sites like Weibo. You might recall that during the last episode, we discussed how the Chinese people use code words or phrases to escape censorship, and how the Chinese government gets smart to these code words and adds them to their censorship lists as quickly as they can. According to China Digital Times, code phrases like to board a plane have been censored because they are, or at least in this case, to board a plane is homophonous in Mandarin with to ascend the throne. Images and references to Winnie the Pooh have also been blocked since Winnie the Pooh has been used to mock Xi Jinping since at least 2013. You get the idea. As we said two weeks ago, China's censorship regime is perhaps the most sophisticated and efficient in the world, and its response to the Chinese Communist Party's announcement is demonstrating just that. The Chinese government wants to prevent any attempt at organizing in favor of democratic ideals, particularly if that organizing could result in any form of collective action. Censorship of the internet, of course, is one of the ways the Chinese government ensures those discussions don't get off the ground. If you haven't listened to our podcast on the Great Firewall of China yet, please do so. I truly think the situation in China is desperate for free speech advocates, and we need to create more awareness surrounding it. So share the episode with your family and friends, colleagues and acquaintances, over social media, wherever. Let's help our friends across the Pacific as best we can. You can also learn more about what's happening in China by visiting greatfire.org or following at greatfirechina on Twitter. They have a ton of useful information on what's getting censored over there, and there's a lot more going on than we had time to address in the last podcast or that we have time to address in this short introduction. I should note that there's also been a lot of good coverage from places like Vox and China Digital Times about the words being added to the censorship lists, and Google will be helpful to you in that regard if you want to learn more. Now, on to today's show. As I mentioned at the top, our guest today is evolutionary biologist and former Evergreen State College professor Brett Weinstein. As I'm sure many of you are already aware, Brett was at the center of last year's controversy at Evergreen that resulted in extensive media coverage, and in some cases ridicule, and that eventually led Brett and his wife Heather Hying to file a lawsuit and subsequently leave the school. I don't want to get into the situation too much since what's happened has been well documented and is probably quite familiar to most of our listeners, but briefly, the controversy centered around Brett's objection to a day of absence 
event on campus. The Day of Absence programming was based on a play by Douglas Turner Ward in which black people disappear for one day in a southern community and demonstrate to the remaining white residents how much they depend on their black neighbors. In years past, students of color would voluntarily leave Evergreen's campus, but in 2017, last year, the organizers decided to invert the programming and ask white students, faculty, and staff to leave the campus. Well, Brett didn't like this idea and wrote into a faculty listserv about it, noting that there is a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated roles and a group or coalition encouraging another group to go away. The first, he said, is a forceful call to consciousness, which is, of course, crippling to the logic of oppression. The second, he noted, is a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. He continued, you may take this letter as a formal protest of this year's structure, and you may assume I will be on campus on the day of absence. I would encourage others to put phenotype aside and reject this new formulation, whether they have registered for it already or not. On a college campus, he said, one's right to speak or to be must never be based on skin color. There was subsequent, I should note, subsequent back and forth on the email list between staff, faculty, and Brett. And the email was published in the student newspaper. But according to Brett, the day of absence came and went almost without incident. That is, until May 23rd, when seemingly out of the blue, he said, things changed. Then 50 students disrupted Brett's class, accused him of racism, and demanded his resignation, shouting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Brett Weinstein has got to go. Some videos of this encounter, if you want to check them out, can be found on YouTube. And according to Inside Higher Ed, graffiti reading Fire Brett was found on campus, and some of the subsequent demonstrations allegedly involved impromptu searches for him on campus. There was also a demonstration at the campus's Red Square that turned into a march into Evergreen's library where University President George Bridges' office is located. And according to the Olympian, students surrounded Bridges' office and promised not to leave until their demands were met, including in those demands a demand that Brett Weinstein be suspended immediately without pay, but all students receive full credit. There were even some reports that students blocked entrances to the library with furniture. The backlash to this was so intense, according to Weinstein, that Evergreen's chief of police told them that she could not protect him from protesters on campus and that her department had received and agreed to a stand-down order from President Bridges, which she said was against her better judgment. As a result, Weinstein and his biology course met in a public park off campus. You get the idea. So as I said, eventually Brett and his wife filed a lawsuit and left the school. And Brett describes himself now as a professor in exile. And he has spent the subsequent months after his departure from Evergreen touring the country, discussing the state of free speech and viewpoint diversity on campus and in the world at large. And on today's podcast, we don't spend too much time getting into the nitty-gritty of what happened to him at Evergreen, but rather we try to address some bigger picture questions, like the role of a college or university, how faculty should respond when their campus communities call for their firing, the differences between free speech and the First Amendment, tribal instincts, and we also discuss the use of stigmatizing labels to ostracize 
and much, much more. This conversation, I should note, was recorded on the evening of Wednesday, February 21st, which I think is important to mention since we referenced some articles that were actually published that week and events that occurred that week. So with that, I'll turn it over to evolutionary biologist and former Evergreen State College professor, Brett Weinstein. Professor Brett Weinstein, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of what happened at Evergreen too much. Now that might be unavoidable in the course of this conversation, but I feel as though the conversation surrounding Evergreen is well-trodden territory at this point. I want to instead talk about some of the bigger questions. But before we do that, we should address what you're doing now. You describe yourself on your website as a professor in exile. Why? Well, uh, that description is in some sense very close to literal. I was left with no situation but to resign. My wife and I resigned because we could not have kept teaching at a college that refused to acknowledge that it had put us in danger and had created a very inhospitable environment. And so we are now uh, professors without a college. It is not clear that we will return to the academy. It's uh, not obvious where we would go. There are other opportunities that have shown up and we are now finding ourselves involved in a number of really interesting discussions about the state of civilization, the state of the academy, freedom of expression. Uh, and this is, uh, it's a very interesting time for us. At the moment, our concern is that we we want a settlement from the college enough that it gives us a couple of years to find a new source of income and it clearly indicates that the college understood that it had made an error and could not afford to face us in court, but it does mean that the pressure is on to figure out how to replace the the two incomes that we lost in this process. Yeah, some of the most exhaustive documentation of your controversy at Evergreen was written by you and your wife, uh, Heather Hain, in the Washington Examiner. And in that, you kind of talk about the lawsuit that you filed against Evergreen. And you said, you know, that you wanted to stay there and revive its reputation um, from the laughing stock that it sort of became after May of last year. I am not interested in debate. I am interested only in dialectic, which does mean I listen to you and you listen to me. Uh, you wanted to have conversations on campus about viewpoint diversity and civil rights and the role of higher education. Um, but you write that the college wanted no part of it uh, and that you wanted a bit of a leave to let the situation kind of quiet down. Um, recalling here that you had to actually leave campus because your your safety was a concern um, and you were denied even that leave of absence. Um, I guess one of my questions for you is, do you think you can even return to the academy if you wanted to? Um, my thinking here is that the corporate, you know, kind of liability-obsessed nature of universities might preclude you from finding another job in the academy. Is that not right? Uh, it is unclear to us. I should say we have had uh, some interest from a number of schools, a small number, but I do think there is a general question about having seen what happened at Evergreen and having seen that Heather and I stood up against our administration, uh, even though some people might in principle be interested in having us 
join their institution or maybe even making a statement that was affirming of the importance of freedom of expression and inquiry and enlightenment, there is nobody is likely to want to take the risk of bringing us on board should similar things happen at their institution. So uh, I, don't, I don't know whether returning to the academy is going to occur. Heather and I, uh, I should say her last name is pronounced Hying. Hying. Flying. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we were very interested in helping Evergreen recover because Evergreen was an experiment in education. And part of the experiment was quite brilliant. And that got lost in the absurd story of what happened at the end uh, of the functional part of, uh, of, of Evergreen. And we would love to see the part that actually shined resurrected. Um, but the administration, and in particular the new president of the college, George Bridges, was absolutely dead set against changing course. And the college has remained very much on the same course, and things have even gotten worse, not famously, but we have friends still on the inside of Evergreen, and so we're able to keep track of uh, how things are developing, and it looks to us like we got out just in time. Things have become more dire from the perspective of faculty members trying to challenge the, the new orthodoxy, and the college is in serious financial trouble. You talk a little bit about the unique role that Evergreen had in the educational environment and how different its methods uh, were. Yeah, you mentioned, I think in a previous podcast I listened to, that students might spend a whole academic year with one professor deeply immersed in any given topic. Um, what do you think the main role of a college or university is? I heard Nicholas Christakis of Yale previously describe it as the dissemination, production, and preservation of knowledge. But perhaps that's not how everyone at every university sees its purpose. You know, I was struck by some of the statements actually made by faculty at Evergreen during this controversy and also by students who saw Evergreen not as a traditional liberal arts institution per se, but rather perhaps as a college of social justice. I remember there was one student who famously said, uh, didn't you educate us on how to do shit like this? Speaking to the, the disruptions that happened. Uh, and there was also a professor who reportedly said that the students were doing exactly what we've taught them to do. So what is the role of a university and is there room for a place that is a college of social justice. It is important, I think, to distinguish between a college and a university because a university is really a college plus something else. And Evergreen was not a university. It, it, it is a college. And I would say the role of a college, I started saying a number of years ago um, that we should teach students how to think, not what to think. I've now seen that phrase a number of places, and I wonder if I didn't pick it up somewhere myself. But, um, but in any case, I think it's a very concise description of the highest and best use of a college. And it is true that um, factual information and uh, other things are transmitted along the way. But really, the purpose of a college education is to enhance the mind 
so that the life that the person leads is better, more fulfilling, uh, more likely to contribute to society in some positive way. A university has an added purpose, and that is the generation of new knowledge through research. And these things are tied together for some reasons that are uh, good, but largely out of a historical accident. So you don't have to house the generation function for knowledge in the same place that you house the, um, the teaching of people to think critically. Um, but it has been convenient during many eras to have them housed together. I think back to Socrates and the the Athenian philosophers, and they, they would have these schools in which students would sit at their teacher's feet and listen to them. And, and in those contexts, and I might be wrong here, these schools were primarily for the thinkers, for the teachers, and the students went there to learn from them. But their, the thinkers' primary purpose wasn't the education of the students. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. You know, how many students do you have to educate in order to produce one who's capable of generating new insight that's valuable? You know, even if it's one in 500 or one in 1,000, that may be a decent rate of return, especially if the externality of the exercise is that you've produced hundreds of other people who are better equipped to, to live a fulfilling, uh, contributing life. So um, I think it's important not to sweat the details too much. It is valuable to teach people how to think critically. And we can debate what the, the most useful aspect of that process is, but in general, simply having people, uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to say trained because I don't feel like I was training them. I was, I was leading them to discover how one thinks critically. And, you know, that was very rewarding for me, and I certainly did uh, a lot of theoretical work in parallel with my teaching work, and in fact, I used it as fodder for teaching, which was a great deal of fun. But, you know, when I went into the classroom, or when Heather went into the classroom, we would very frequently teach in a way, I mean, first of all, we, we told students that when you're studying a complex system like biology, and you're trying to understand how uh, adaptive evolution works, you should treat it more like an immersion language than like a linear subject. It's not, it's not linear. And the best way to understand it is to engage puzzles again and again from different angles with different assumptions and uh, learn to, to use the tools adeptly. So clearly the students who were protesting you didn't have the same view of education that you did. Is, is that fair to say? Well, I don't want to judge them all. I think quite a number of them got dragged into something that if they had really been given a fair opportunity to evaluate both sides, they would have ended up on the other side. But the ringleaders certainly did not share that philosophy. We did block him at first. For transparency, we did block him at first. He was trying to leave, but however, we didn't. Uh, we had a conversation with him, whatever a conversation is. And I think it is quite telling. Heather and I taught 
Uh, I was at Evergreen for 14 years. She was there for 15. So we have hundreds of students who know us well, many of whom we keep up with, and none of them turned on us. All of the students who protested us were people we didn't know. And that begins to suggest what took place, that there was actually a schism within the college. There were those of us committed to teaching people to think critically, and it would appear that there were others interested in preventing them from thinking critically. So that's kind of a optimistic note then. It's it's more or less becomes an information issue at that point. There are there are certain people who are getting wrapped up in these protests without having sufficient information to determine whether what they're protesting is what they think they're protesting. I, I, I think back to a blog post written by former Northwestern University professor Alice Drager, Drager this weekend, or actually she published that this week, in which she talked about a visit she made to Wellesley College outside of Boston. And she was there uh, giving a speech with the Freedom Project, and she left the speech to find something like 75 students ready to protest her because of some of her views related to transgender rights or transgenderism. I'm not sufficiently educated in that discussion to be able to articulate properly what exactly they took issue with. But she writes in her blog post that she stood outside the classroom after she walked out from giving her speech and the students were there and she said, okay, I'm here and I'm happy to speak with you all. And the ringleader at that point said something to the effect of, we don't want to speak with you. You've already had your chance. Uh, and she said that she looked around and saw some of the other activists who were kind of put off by that statement and then started to engage her. And what she learned from the 45-minute to an hour-long conversation that happened after that is that the information that was going around Wellesley via email and social media about her was inaccurate. And these students were receiving that inaccurate information and only learned after confronting her that they were receiving that inaccurate information. And some of them were actually upset that the ringleaders, uh, quote-unquote ringleaders, had misled them. And it sounds like that's similar to what happened with you. The people who actually knew you knew you weren't a racist. Uh, yes, I, I saw Alice's post on this, and I, it, you know, it, it, I had a lot of thoughts about it. It's not even just similar to what happened. It's almost identical. And the, the fact is these protests have a certain character, and it always involves ringleaders who either because they are thoroughly deluded about the way things work or because they are bad actors take a uh, a payload and they load it into a package and the payload doesn't match the package so they induce people to think that they are fighting for one cause and then they um, produce a mob that in effect fights for a different cause and the The problem is there's an asymmetry of information. You never know what it is that has been said to people that causes them to react to you the way they do. But they are so deeply invested in these fictions and they have uh, had what function like booby traps installed. If they begin to think for themselves, they trip over these things that prevent them from waking up 
And so it's very frustrating to face such a mob. Um, I was impressed at, at what Drager was able to do in that circumstance. Um, but she had exactly the same reaction that I did and would again in that situation. It's tough if you're in that situation. So I, I in, you know, I get kind of frustrated when I read a lot of pundits talk about how what ha- what's happening on college and university campuses is an, is an aberration. Because just in your listening to you talk right now and talk about the Dreger situation, I can think of many other situations that are that are similar to those situations in some meaningful ways. And I'm thinking, of course, to Nicholas Christakis as well. All three of those encounters, I'm thinking of you, I'm thinking of Dreger, I'm thinking of Christakis, were either photographed, videoed, or otherwise well documented. And in all three scenarios, you three had such poise and calmness about you as you were being addressed by people who must have upset you because they they created a caricature of who you are. They 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 assigned labels to you that you nor anyone else who are f- familiar with you would assign to you. And that if I had to put myself in that position, and I've asked myself this this question many times, could I have been as poised and as calm and as patient and as interested in the dialectic as you three were? And I, I don't know how I would answer that question. History could pivot in the direction of the values that you are standing here for. Yeah, if resign. Could, what? Resign. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I hear this a lot, and it's interesting to me because I also now know uh, Nicholas Christakis and, and Alice Drager, and of course, when we talk, we talk about these sorts of things. And I do think there is a personality uh, trait that does seem to be common amongst people who find themselves in our situation, and it both results in you being uh, confronted by the mob, and it also allows you to look the mob in the eye. And, you know, I I have to say, I don't think it's universal. I wish it were more common. Um, No doubt it comes with some downsides. But when, when the mob confronted me, I knew they were responding to a fiction. And, you know, my frustration is a little bit evident in the clip that people saw. But... At some level, I looked at them and I thought, these are college students who are confused about something important. And it struck me as more or less a professional hazard and a challenge, a kind of challenge I I like. And I tried to reason with them. And what isn't very well captured, at least in the part that most people have seen, is that there were many moments in which people began to wake up. And what I didn't understand because I I didn't yet know how those students had arrived at my door um, was that they were in a situation that did not allow them to rethink. In other words, they weren't there under their own power. They were there doing someone else's bidding. And so to discover that I wasn't a racist would have put them in the awkward spot of going back to the people who had sent them and saying, "You've, you've told us something incorrect. So instead what they did was they uh, went back into autopilot mode and continued on as they were, which was a terrible error on their part. I was listening. 
I was listening to Nick Christakis's conversation with Sam Harris on, on his podcast a while back, and and Nick talked about the mob that surrounded him at, in, in Silliman uh, Courtyard. And he said, and he had, actually all three of you, you, Alice, and Nick, all have a science background. Um, you're all familiar with biology and, and evolution and, and some of the tribal concerns that are baked into a lot of these conversations we're having. And he said one of the things that he tried to do when confronted with the mob is to get them to individuate. What happens when you you form a mob is you de-individuate and you get kind of wrapped up in the mob and you take on the same voice and character as the mob and you stop thinking for yourself. I actually think back to a, a previous protest I became involved in, and I'm not going to give the details of what protest it was, uh, but um, I remember taking part in that and doing insane things, nothing illegal, that I would have never done were I not part of a large group that thought the same way as I did. And that later that night, I reflected on the protest and I thought, what happened to me? I didn't even realize it was happening. And so Nick, when he was confronting the, the, the group, and a certain extent, you might have been doing this, although unconsciously, he said, I tried to force them to individuate. I would look at a single one person and try and address one person as at a time so as to not encourage this mob-like behavior. Well, that's a very interesting insight. The attempt to get them to, to individuate um, is part of a puzzle. And I would say I was focused on a different part of the puzzle. And in, in my work, I think a lot about what human beings are and how they function and the dichotomy between our conscious minds and our semi-conscious and unconscious minds is very important in how we function. We try to offload as much as we can to the autopilot so that our conscious minds can focus on the tough stuff. So I think what you're describing about the protest that you were in is the experience of recognizing that you must have been on autopilot rather than thinking for yourself. So instead of consciously trying to get people to separate, what I was trying to do was get them, I was trying to get their minds to throw an error. Because when your mind throws an error, when something happens in front of you that doesn't add up with the model that you're using, you naturally resort to consciousness in order to sort out what's happened. And so I knew that the students I was confronting, or who were confronting me, were operating on a false premise about who I was. And I thought, if I can show them that the person in front of them is inconsistent with what they've been told, they will wake up. And it did work. I saw several students wake up and struggle with the fact that it didn't, it didn't add up with what they'd been told. But what I didn't count on was that they had been sent with a sheet of paper and so at the point that I started to reach, there were two students in particular who I saw the glimmer of recognition in their eyes that something more interesting than what they had been told was going on. When that happened, they went into chanting mode and they just started chanting things that were on the paper rather than confront the new paradox that they had in front of them. So in the end, it didn't work, but I, I know exactly what, what Nicholas means in saying that he was trying to get them to individuate.
it's a it's a shame that you know we would even have to consider this, but it, th- this has happened so much. People being confronted, individuals by themselves being confronted by large groups who are quite hostile to them. That there's got to be either evolutionary speaking or scientifically speaking, a way in which to um, de-escalate the situation. And and individuation might be one of the techniques, but I'd be interested to see someone else do some research on other techniques that faculty or other people who find themselves in this situation might use. Well, actually, I, I think that's the frightening part of where we are, is that there is for a very important evolutionary reason, no fail-safe on this particular mode. In other words, you do not want, as an army going into battle, you don't want your army to be susceptible to uh, propaganda that will cause them uh, to think for themselves. In other words, they have to function as a unit in order to succeed. And there are many circumstances short of being in a war in which that's true. And so one of the things that human beings do, which is no doubt adaptive, is turn off the mechanisms for being reached. And there are times when that can save you, but there are other times when it can put you in serious jeopardy. And I fear that it is putting at least the nation in serious jeopardy right now. We have a lot of people who are thoroughly convinced that they know the answer. They know what we must do in order to make civilization safe for everyone. And they are not listening to critiques of people who understand why the answer isn't simple. And they are simply forging ahead and they take anything that will not bend to their will as hostile. And they paint it as something other than what it is. So in Drager's case, in my case, in Nicholas Christakis's case, in James Demore's case, in all of these cases, we are immediately recategorized as on the far right or even the alt right in order to explain to themselves why they don't have to listen to what we're saying. And so you can see the tragedy unfold in front of you where anything you do that makes progress results in a mechanism kicking in that prevents further progress. Well, you talked about this. I I was at your panel discussion that Spiked put on here in New York City. You talked about um, that, you know, stigmatizing labels and their utility to movements like this. You said stigmatizing labels and concepts don't depend on accuracy for their effectiveness. The most important thing they do is is isolate. Um, and, And you saw this in some of the mob mentality, as we've already discussed, you know, refusing to grapple meaningfully with your arguments. Or would they would ascribe you know malicious motives to your arguments? Your email, for example, objecting to the day of absence. They said it it was racist, and that your motives for it were racist. They assumed, as Christopher Hitchens once put it, that your worst possible motive was your only possible motive, and that's all they needed. Uh, Greg Lukianoff, my colleague, who you may know says he's increasingly concerned with what he's calling this perfect rhetorical fortress that we're building for ourselves, whereby we make arguments towards motive, feeling, identity, and these are all fundamentally unfalsifiable arguments, and therefore, as a result, shut down debate by their very nature. Um, At the point that the student mob confronted me at my classroom, I was actually partway through writing an article that was going to be called thought prisons of the left, 
And the idea was exactly this, that there is a set of arguments that is hermetically sealed such that it cannot be accessed by reason. And that once people are deploying these things, there's very little hope of um, persuading them. And maybe it's even more insidious than that because many of these stigmas have a a particular character to them. And, you know, I said, as you mentioned in New York, that the the truth of the stigma is unimportant. But uh, even worse is that these stigmas often have a contagious nature. So somebody, a journalist actually, believe it or not, a guy named Owen Higgins, accused me on Twitter the other day of being a grifter. And this struck me because grifter is a very interesting term. For one thing, you don't hear it very often. Um, it's archaic. But, you know, we all have a relationship with the term because of its use in, you know, particular tropes in literature. And the thing about calling somebody a grifter, in this case, if you know anything about me, whatever you think I might be wrong about, this doesn't ring true, right? I, I've been with the same uh, partner for... 30 years, I've held down a job uh, at a college for 14 years and gotten rave reviews from my students who didn't then go on to be angry with me. I have a good relationship with both my undergraduate and graduate uh, advisor. I got an advanced degree. It's all sorts of stuff that just doesn't fit with the idea of uh, a grifter who's not what he says he is and goes from place to place conning people. But if you say that somebody is a grifter, then anybody who finds themselves persuaded by that person is now a mark. So by calling somebody a grifter, you are effectively delivering a penalty, not just to the person, but to anybody who would entertain what they are saying. Because if you say, actually, you know, Brett doesn't sound like a grifter to me, well, then the point is, oh, well, then I guess you've been conned. So Anybody who doesn't know the story now experiences a penalty for trying to find out about it with an open mind. So I find this very insidious. Even worse, in this case, the person leveling the accusation is actually associated with FAIR, the organization Fairness and Accuracy uh, in Reporting, and with The Intercept. So this is a person at two important institutions that are dedicated, uh, ostensibly, to promoting uh, fearless, clear-headed analysis of events in the world, and yet their, um, their reporter is wielding a stigma designed to get people not to listen to other points of view. That strikes me as a dangerous situation. Yeah, and it's ultimately harmful to the cause of journalism. When you think about the finite resource that it is that is time and the utility that good journalism serves for us citizens who go to work our nine to five jobs come home spend time with our wife and kids go to work uh you know again the next morning go on vacations we don't have a ton of time to do our own research into issues so we depend on institutions like the intercept like nbc to do the hard reporting, the hard digging, the hard research, and we trust them when they level in an analysis. And if those analyses are wrong, 
they also have this tendency to catch on elsewhere, as you're saying. Uh, I think back to when an institution, a journalistic institution called FIRE, conservative leaning. And the next day, it found itself on CNN, and it created this snowball effect. Now, ultimately, we were able to get a correction because any clear look at FIRE demonstrates that we're nonpartisan. Uh, you know, our, our last two lawsuits included one defending a student who was detained by police for handi- handing out stop capitalism flyers. Another one was a lawsuit involving a professor at Essex County College who went on Tucker Carlson and defended a Black Lives Matter event. We just had a case yesterday where we defended a piece of art at Polk State College in in Florida, whereby Trump is shown in explicit positions. So you look at those cases and you look at our staff, which anyone who knows our staff knows that it's very diverse ideologically and probably has more liberals than conservatives or libertarians on it. And these labels just bear no reality to what I experience on any given day. And for people like my parents who don't have the time to go dig into, for example, our 990, our cases, our, our staff, they depend on places, on these, these institutions to report correctly. And for many people who read some of these, they see conservative leaning and they would dismiss us out of hand. So it's quite frustrating. And I, I've been in a similar position to you, to you in, in, the, in, that se- in the sense that I work for FIRE and FIRE has been misdescribing it. I, there's nothing more frustrating. And you can provide all the evidence you want in the world, but people have the bias that people don't want to be wrong. And so when you tell them they're wrong, they will look for any excuse not to correct themselves. And it's difficult. And I don't know how we solve it, but besides um, advocating for more skepticism, more critical thinking amongst our population. And one of the places, of course, we do that is in the academy. I think there's one other thing. So I should say, um, as things were disintegrating at Evergreen before the protest, but as they were falling apart, and they, they fell apart over the course of a full year intensively and Um, more diffusely over the year prior to that. But um, as things were coming apart, I was trying to figure out what to do, and I was desperately trying to get my colleagues to wake up to what they were uh, witnessing, and I was trying to figure out how to protect um, myself and my family from the disintegration of the institution that was uh, responsible for uh, both my income and my wife's. And Anyway, I encountered fire for the first time, and I also saw this suggestion that fire was a conservative entity, and I was not sure what to make of it. So I sort of, I filed the what is fire in a kind of what I call the agnostic box. Um, I don't know what fire is. And then, after things fully came apart at Evergreen, I ended up at a conference uh, put on by fire. And I discovered the truth, which isn't hard to find out when you actually interact with the people who are at fire. And of course, the stigma didn't match what I experienced at all. There are certainly some conservative people associated with fire, but it is not by any means the character of fire. And I, I, as you said, I met liberal, open-minded people associated. So even the fact that somebody who was in the process of being stigmatized was in some sense susceptible to the stigma being wielded against somebody else ought to frighten us quite a bit. 
uh, as for what to do about it, I would point out there is a particular booby trap that prevents us from solving this problem. And the booby trap involves a penalty for talking to people who are counter-narrative. So if the narrative wielded by some group says that somebody else is alt-right, then talking to that person is a sin. Like you talking to Tucker Carlson. Professor Brett Weinstein joins us now. Professor, first of all, thank you for coming on. That looks like something, you know, out of Nom Pen 1975. Was that, I mean, what exactly was going on there? What happened? Well, uh, what happened is that 50 or so students decided to disrupt the class that I was holding that morning and demand my resignation. Me talking to Tucker Carlson or having talked to Tucker Carlson, people talking to me. I'm now literally referred to on Evergreen's campus as Evergreen's Donald Trump. I've been referred to as he who shall not be named. I've been referred to as a boogeyman. So the idea is to make somebody who knows something um, untouchable. And if you make them untouchable, then it, it, uh, it isolates essentially the cult, and that's the only analogy that functions here. It isolates the cult from the information that might cause people to wake up. So in terms of a cure, it is very important that all of us across the political spectrum kill off the idea that there is something immoral about talking to people with whom we disagree. I, I disagree with Ben Shapiro, but there should be no penalty for my talking to him. Yeah, of course. Well, it, it, yeah, to you and me, it's perfectly obvious. To most people, it is anything but. And so somehow I think we need to articulate this argument right up to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. I reserve the right to talk to a white nationalist. I'm not going to be persuaded by their arguments that there's something defective about me, um, but I reserve the right to talk to them. And there's all sorts of good that might arise from talking to them. Many people have found themselves woken up by encounters with something that they have previously misunderstood. So we have to remove the penalty for crossing ideological lines. And if we can do that, then we have some, uh, some hope to break the stigma engine. If we don't figure out how to do that, the stigma engine is a very powerful thing. With regards to the label of fire as conservative leaning, this is a bit of a hobby horse for me because I'm, of course, the director of communications for fire. And anytime this happens, I, I have to write in and, and call or email the reporter and, and, and try and get a correction. But I think a lot of it is driven, driven by the sense that the free speech on campus debates are a conservative cause. I, I think back to some tweets from some very prominent journalists saying, oh yeah, much ado about nothing here again in this campus free speech debate. And then the next time something egregious happens on campus, oh, much ado about nothing, nothing here. While at the same time, conservatives are getting getting animated about it. But I, I look at fires cases and I help put together the publicity plan for all of them. And I, again, the, our last two big cases were one at Polk State College involving the censorship of an anti-Trump piece of art. And then our other case was the detention of a socialist student at Joliet Junior College in Chicago. 
And that, that latter case, the Joliet Junior College case, was one of the most egregious we've ever seen. This is a student detained for 45 minutes for handing out stop capitalism flyers outside of the campus free speech zone. But almost no left-leaning, or what we would describe as left-leaning publications, wrote about them. So there, these, these same people from these left-leaning wing publications who are criticizing conservatives for blowing out of proportion cases like yours, and I don't think your case was blown out of proportion, are not speaking up when, when their side's ox are getting, is it getting gored. And they should. But at the same time, we are sometimes seeing conservative publications condemn censorship of the left. I, I'm looking at our Polk State College case today, which we issued a press release for yesterday, the Washington Free Beacon has covered it. The Daily Caller has covered it. The College Fix, which some describe as conservative, uh, has covered it. And they've all covered it in relatively sympathetic ways. So again, I, I think a lot of this comes from the notion that the campus free speech debates are partisan. And, and whenever civil liberties are at stake, I'm very fearful of, of that happening. And that's how you lose your civil liberties when it becomes a cause of only one or the other political ideology. And I think that's FIRE's unique niche, is that we are truly nonpartisan and that we are working to prevent that from happening. Uh, I, I think the, the danger of what has happened to, I hesitate to even call it the left-leaning press, but it's like a desert when you look for publications that are center or left that are uncompromised. All of the ones that I used to read you know, The Nation, um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, all of these publications. And we should say you are a, consider yourself a man of the left, correct? I am very definitely, I I'm I'm, was a Bernie Sanders supporter. If I take the political compass test, I come out solidly progressive. That hasn't changed in the aftermath of, of any of this. Um, so to be portrayed as on the right... Um, to have no publication that I can count on to report this well that isn't on the right is telling me that something is very seriously wrong with the, the apparatus on the left. And, and one thing I discovered, I, I, you know, I have said that the, I've, I felt that the left ejected me. It, it uh, forced me out. And you know, I was literally forced out of the institution I was in. Um, but uh, I was forced out, and the one of the discoveries was that many other people had been forced out, and I had wrongly understood them to be to be non-progressive. So, in other words, these stigmas affect even people who are alert to um, the idea of being outcast by uh, by your side of the. The political spectrum. Yeah, you seem to have fallen into a a group of intellectuals who, my sense is that they come from the left, but that they've been excommunicated by the left. I'm thinking here of Sam Harris, of Dave Rubin, um, of Lindsey Shepard, Jordan Peterson, perhaps less so, and, and also people like Joe Rogan. These are people who have made their names for themselves, I think in no small part to their excommunication or the, the sense of excommunication. Do you think that's right? Um, it is. And it's interesting because some of them uh, have moved. Their, their understanding of the world has been changed by eviction from the left. Others haven't. 
and all of us have ended up um, partner, partnering with good faith people on the right um, because, frankly, they're reasonable. And I'm not saying the whole right is reasonable. There's obviously a tremendous wrong, a tremendous amount of wrong thinking um, on the right. But many people on the right are good people, careful thinkers, afraid of things that are real. And so anyway, yes, th- there is something to the idea that the, um, the authoritarians on the left are actually creating a movement of people who are, are in exile in some sense. And, uh, you know, the one positive outgrowth of all of this is that they are effectively, their method causes people that you would never hear of who have something important to contribute to the conversation to emerge because they will not be bullied into silence. Yeah, I think about, you know, that group that I just mentioned, you, Sam Harris, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson, Lindsay Shepard, Joe Rogan. These are these are people with huge followings at this point. Jordan Peterson's book's number one on Amazon, or at least was not number one on Amazon last time I checked. Sam Harris and Joe Rogan have some of the most popular uh, podcasts in the world, definitely top 100. Dave Rubin has a popular YouTube channel. So there seems to be a constituency for these issues even if that constituency isn't vocal on campus. Yeah, the constituency is huge because people are, they are afraid of what is coming. And I must say, I don't think that fear is in any way overblown. Um, I think this, the problem is when you allow this kind of mentality to take over educational institutions, you are essentially setting yourself up for a generation of mayhem as these folks are the people on juries deciding who's guilty. They're the people uh, staffing the bureaucracy. And, you know, this, this is going to be a nightmare if we don't um, figure out how to, to right the ship pretty darn quickly. Andrew Sullivan just wrote about this in New York Magazine in his piece, uh, We All Live on Campus Right Now, which I would implore our our listeners to go and read as soon as they're done listening to this podcast is because it's quite excellent. It, it, it talks about how what we at FIRE have seen happening on campus for the past five years is now being imported into institutions that exist outside of campus. And that, you know, that, that includes our justice system. Uh, and, it, and it's quite scary. But I want to get back to the point that you were talking about on how this new I don't, I, you know, I don't even know what to call it. This anti-intellectual movement that's percolating on campus is isolating people who might go out and speak to those with whom they disagree to speak to the other side. I hear the these movements often be described as religious. John McWhorter of Columbia and others have have described them as a new secular religion and. Um, McWhorter was thinking fundamentally when he wrote about this in the Daily Beast about intersectionality and critical theory and how they manifest themselves in activist cultures. Do you think there's merit to that argument? And if so, you know, how do you grapple with the idea that there doesn't seem to be any concern with evangelism in these movements in the sense that they don't really want you to go out and evangelize to the other side, to bring them in, to convert the other side. There's no, there's also no, I don't get any sense uh, that there can be redemption because with you, and I guess we can play a thought experiment here. What could you have done to be redeemed in their eyes? And there's also doesn't seem to be much forgiveness 
either in the sense that there's no concern with motive. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think the we have to be a little bit careful using an analogy to religion, but I think mechanistically, this is just simply a literal uh, description. In other words, it functions in a religious fashion, and not in a good sense. I, I'm somebody um, who believes that religions are uh, products of adaptive evolution, that they contain uh, compendiums of wisdom from past eras, and that they can be very functional if the environment that you deploy them in is similar to the one in which they evolved. I'm actually um, surprised that you and Sam didn't disagree more on that point when I, I listened to your podcast with, with Sam Harris, and he, he seemed to, to buy that argument or at least not push back against it. So I was surprised at that, given his, his uh, reputation uh, with regards to religion. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to further discussion on it, because I think there's a whole lot there. You know, there's the initial observation, and then if you accept that observation, there's um, a whole pantheon of consequences that are well worth uh, exploring. Um, but it does function like a religion. It evangelizes in a particular way, but it doesn't evangelize to its enemies. In other words, the, the game is really won or lost in the vast middle ground of well-intentioned people who don't have the tools to resist getting dragged into something and then having their cognitive dissonance weaponized against them. So once you've signed up for an extreme perspective and you've... Um, you know, in some cases even committed crimes on behalf of that perspective, it's very hard to acknowledge that you had it wrong. And so many people just double down on the wrong interpretation and uh, hope that things turn around. So um, it, it has that characteristic. There are many who could be reached. You probably will never reach the extremists and you certainly won't reach the bad actors. But the vast middle ground could be reached if we can, um, I mean, really, you know, Sam Harris, in the middle of Evergreen's meltdown, as it was still very unclear what was going to happen, as people were being, uh, well, I was being hunted on campus. Quite literally. People were patrolling, quite literally hunted on campus. Oh, and I was being hunted, and um, it, through a quirk of the institution's structure, my boss and the uh, boss uh, in charge of campus police was the same guy, President Bridges, and he told the police to stay out of it. So he, in effect, created a, an experiment in anarchy, which descended into people roving with baseball bats. There was a case of battery. It was quite frightening, and actually I think Evergreen got lucky that nobody was seriously hurt. But um, the... The, the way in is to reach those who are responding to the label that they have seen and not to the contents of the box. They need to be alerted to the fact that they have signed up based on good intentions for something that is, um, at the very least, dangerously in error and, uh, at worst, not well-intentioned in the first place. Evolutionarily speaking, you're an evolutionary biologist. 
is all of this quite predictable? I remember you were talking in uh, one place or another about tyranny being the end of prosperity. Now, this discussion we're having might not be about tyranny properly defined, but there is the sense that as things get better, our search for problems gravitates towards issues of lesser importance or what we might think of as of lesser importance. We've defeated, the, in other words, we've defeated the big problems. Now we need to turn up the dial on the microscope, so to speak, and dig deeper into the microbiota to find our societal diseases. One might draw parallels in this sense to the moral philosopher Peter Singer's expanding circle argument that argues that our genetically based drive to protect our tribe has developed more or less into an ethic with an expanding circle of, of moral concern. Um, one can argue that it's only prosperity then that can make this expanding circle of moral concern possible. So do you think this is a downstream effect of that? Well, you've opened up about six questions, <laughs> each of which could take several hours to unpack. But I do think, so what I've said is that tyranny is the end game of prosperity. I do believe that the tribalism evident in this anti-intellectual movement is a consequence of that very thing, um, that it poses a great danger. It does involve the breaking of uh, what most people would call empathy. I would actually say we should properly call it sympathy, um, but it, it involves the breaking of sympathy with people, so the shrinking of the circle that Singer is talking about. I would argue that Singer's expanding circle is itself an evolutionary phenomenon. And just to expand on Singer's philosophy there, it's the idea that our circle of moral concern started with our immediate family, expanded to our tribe, expanded to the nation, expanded to perhaps the international community. And his argument is that it will soon expand to non-sentient beings. Well, to sentient beings like animals and then to non-sentient beings, perhaps like plants. Uh, because, well, I, go ahead. I think he goes too far. I think he actually... Um, goes a couple steps too far and, and what he's predicting is uh, inaccurate. But um, I, I do think there's reason to include uh, animals for whom sympathy makes sense. You know, um, let's just say birds and mammals contain a great number of creatures that we ought to be very seriously concerned about um, making sure that we don't treat them in a, in a cruel fashion. But um, the... The fact of the breakdown of our circle of moral concern is a very serious threat to civilization. You asked what we should be doing, and you said maybe prosperity is the only um, antidote. Unfortunately, that sounds an awful lot like growth is the only source um, to prevent this from happening. And I, that can't be the case. I was actually saying that that prosperity is one of the causes of this breakdown. Well, in, in one sense, it's the, the, the antidote to it because it expands our scope of moral concern. But in the other sense, it's one of the causes of the breakdown because only a prosperous nation could get to the point where it's concerned with the motives and ideology of a person like you, right? Well, I do think you know, prosperity results in an expansion of something. And then when that prosperity breaks down, things turn tribal. And that uh, this has always been bad. It is now an existential threat because of the 
power of the technologies that are at our disposal and the way that we are all interconnected. So I, I do think that the solution to this, that really there is only one, um, it could come in many forms, but we have to effectively engineer a structure for civilization that stands down this evolutionary dynamic and that gives people um, essentially a sense of, of expansion and well-being. Um, in other words, solves, solves the problems that people face and gives them the somatic sense that things are um, good and improving, which will cause them not to go after each other in the way that we do as things contract. Um, that's not an easy puzzle to solve, but I do believe it is formally solvable, and that really the question of uh, human persistence on Earth is going to be dependent on whether or not we can find a solution of that nature that is evolutionarily stable and um, manage to find the will to institute it. I hate to look at history through rose-colored glasses, but Mark Lilla in his book, The Once and Future Liberal, talks about how we don't really have any unifying messages in America. And and I get the sense that we're becoming more and more concerned about what divides us than what unites us. When you think back to the rhetoric of Martin Luther King, it was a very it was very clearly a rhetoric of unification. What what unites us is greater than what divides us. And I'm in thinking about that, I'm reminded of a letter that was republished by Harvard professor Randall Kennedy in his recent article for um, the American Prospect called The Forgotten Origins of the Constitution on Campus. And it, um, this letter that he republished came from a black student whose name was Bernard Lee. And in the 1960s, he wrote a letter to Alabama Governor John Patterson um, protesting the expulsion of some Alabama state students who participated in an off-campus sit-in. Um, Bernard would later become a plaintiff in a lawsuit about it, and he actually went on to become an aide to Martin Luther King. But in this letter, and I've seen other letters and pieces of literature like it, he says to Governor John Patterson, your decision to expel these students is out of tune with the spirit of Americanism. He goes on to say, your decision is a flagrant contradiction of the Christian and democratic ideals of our nation. And when you think about that, almost everyone can be looped under that umbrella, maybe not the Christian umbrella. And so it's hard for anyone to stand in opposition to those values. And he's appealing to the moral concerns of people like Governor John Patterson. And I don't see that same sense from the anti-intellectuals today, that they're appealing to some message of, of broad moral concern. Now, maybe I, I know you might push back and say, well, they are appealing to messages of equity, which are of broad major, uh, moral concern. And maybe that's the whole in my argument. But I do get a sense that there, that, that there is a greater concern or focus on what divides us than what unites us. And I don't know how you turn back that tide absent some environmental disaster or some war or some, um, you know, existential threat to to our existence, which historically has been what unites people. So w do you get the same sense that the messaging is more about what divides us and what unites us? And, and is there any way to 
to turn that tide. And I know what we keep talking about solutions and they often come back to this to the same ideas. But this seems substantively different in a sense. Well, I wouldn't make the argument against your argument that you did. I don't hear <laughs> the uh, the moral concern in these. I mean, I hear it. I hear lip service paid to it. But when you ask for a definition of equity, uh, what comes back is such uh, transparent nonsense that I think it's just just another um, fiction in their little glossary of terms that uh, are being used for a purpose. Um, so yes, I do think that they are. Uh, you know, I would say utterly nihilistic. They do not have a vision, a positive vision of what might be. They do not have a proper understanding of, um, you know, I'm not saying society is fair. It isn't fair. And it's unfair along many of the lines, uh, you know, that populations are not treated equally and they don't have uh, equal access to the productivity of society and all of that. But um, what is being argued for is more or less like a looting party more than it is a vision of how civilization might be made fair. Uh, as for how you turn the tide, I think we have to recognize this distinction between the true believers and those who are going along with something they don't understand or on the fence trying to figure out what's going to happen. Yes. And we have to, we have to win them over to the idea that nuance is not a tool that is being wielded to unfairly keep populations down. Nuance and inquiry and science, these are um, common goods. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess if there's one positive thing I can say about this movement, it's that I think that they are actually the result of a frustration with the um, structural unfairnesses in our system. And that basically that frustration has boiled over in a completely uh, incoherent, vindictive, um, foolish way. But I do think we have to solve these problems once and for all so that people don't boil over in this incoherent uh, uh, mode and you know basically jeopardize the entire human enterprise over um, the failure to get where we're going. Yeah, you know, reason and logic being tools to turn the tide here seems quite clear to me. But at the same time, as you point out, those tools are often called tools of the oppressor. I think back to the, the campus due process context in which um, people or universities who are, who are required to adjudicate issues of sexual misconduct educate their investigators on the idea that someone accused of sexual misconduct will often be reasonable and logical. And that not, that's not evidence of their innocence, but rather evidence of their their guilt that's it's almost it's almost <laughs> yeah. you know it's almost that perfect rhetorical fortress that we we had uh we had discussed before but that's that's a complete other conversation you know one of the other tools is just speaking up 
and not being cowed into silence. You know, University of Pennsylvania professor Jonathan Zimmerman wrote an excellent article for Inside Higher Ed earlier this week calling for his colleagues in the academy, particularly faculty members, to stand up to the campus bullies. And stand up to the campus bullies is something he wrote, so I have that in quotes here. And you wrote something similar for the Wall Street Journal amidst your controversy at Evergreen last year. The headline for your op-ed was, The Campus Mob Came for Me and You, Professor, Could Be Next. And I know you probably didn't write that headline because I work with nope. journalists all the time and, <laughs> and the uh, editorial page editors often write the headlines. But most recently, we've seen the, the mob come for University of Pennsylvania professor Amy Wax. And that's what Jonathan Zimmerman, Zimmerman was uh, re- replying to here. And she also wrote in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. So I get there's this, this sense that there's that things could get worse before it gets better and that faculty members are realizing that if they don't speak up, they're in deep trouble. Um, there's the, there's got to be this critical mass on campus that if only they had the courage to speak up, they could manage to change the culture. I don't know how many times I've heard from professors similarly positioned that there's a huge difference between what people say privately and what they're willing to say publicly. And you talked about this in one of your pieces you wrote about your situation, that after you went on Fox, you got over a thousand emails or something like that of people who were concerned with what with what happened to you oh yeah the the outpouring of support was unbelievable and i got almost no negativity all the negativity was concentrated at evergreen and overwhelmingly people outside were grateful to have somebody stand up and in fact one of the things that struck heather and me looking at the just i mean we couldn't even keep up on the inflow of of emails. Yeah, I don't know how any of you do it. <laughs> well, it's 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 hard. I and mean, you know, we dropped a lot of balls that we discovered, you know, months later when we started going back through stuff. Just just the outpouring was incredible. But um, the, the one of the things that struck struck us very strongly was the number of people who actually didn't just tolerate the fact that I was a progressive, but that actually liked the fact that there was a progressive that they could listen to and respect. And so that said something right there. And I think one of the things that we have to realize is that we have these almost non-overlapping bubbles. And each side, I mean, the thing I keep saying to people is, um, the Fox News uh, viewer thinks that the NPR listener is insane, and the NPR listener thinks that the Fox News viewer is insane, and they're both right. Um, and the problem is that we, if you look at the slate of things that either one of those groups believes, it contains some true things and some false things. And the other side sees the false things very clearly and tunes out. So anyway, what I, what I would say to all of us is we have to um, break through the boundaries of our filter bubbles and talk to people on the other side, really give them a chance to compel you that they have something to say. There will be topics on which maybe they don't and they're diluted and there will be other topics in which you're diluted and you won't know what they are until you begin to compare notes. So the irony at the bottom of all of this is that the thing that is most necessary to break this dynamic and return to some kind of reasonable dialogue, some kind of unity around the values that most people really do share, the thing that is necessary is people really need a college education that equips them to navigate an argument with nuance. And so it is 
in a sea of deep ironies. It is maybe the greatest irony that this is now dismantling the very apparatus that enhances people's ability to avoid catastrophes like this, which is the college and university system. My, my colleague Greg Lukianoff wrote about that in his book on learning liberty, and there's some organizations that are doing great work on that front, including Heterodox Academy, yep. of which I'm assuming you're a member. <laughs> um, oh, I, I was a member um, before Evergreen came apart, and I remember as Evergreen came apart, and you know, most people had never heard of Evergreen, suddenly it starts showing up uh, in the national news, and I, um, you know, I, I had signed up, and uh, I was following Heterodox Academy on Twitter, and I was following John Haidt, and I remember his discovery that I was already a member of Heterodox Academy. Um, I had a, um, a pretty big smile when I realized that he had not expected that somebody who was actually involved in one of these things would already have signed up, but, yeah. but I had. Fire's in, a, fire's in a bit of a weird position here in this debate, and it's almost weird for me as Director of Communications at FIRE to be talking about some of these deep philosophical and moral concerns because primarily we're a civil liberties organization. And calling for someone's firing or punishment, as is what happened to you, is of course protected speech. But at the same time, there's something fundamentally illiberal about those calls that must be rejected. So while we defend a student or faculty member's right to call for punishment, we would do everything in our power to prevent the punishment on the basis of protected speech from happening. So in that regard, we must we have to kind of have a conversation about norms. You were right when you said during that New York panel discussion that free speech being identified with the First Amendment is not adequate to defend free expression dialogue or the, the free exchange of ideas. It's a separate concern from the First Amendment. And we need to talk about norms that encourage dialogue and that preserve the fundamental elements of the academy, namely – in my opinion, the preservation, dissemination, and discovery of truth, and that encourage this mission, we need to avoid these ideological mobs. I think John Haidt had it right when he wrote in September that every open letter a faculty member signs to condemn a colleague for his or her words brings us closer to a world in which academic disagreements are resolved by social force and political power, not by argumentation and persuasion. So my question stemming from that is, do you feel like what happened to you at Evergreen was a violation of your free speech rights? Um, yeah, it never occurred to me to think about it in those terms. I really, to the extent that it, I mean, that's not quite right. We did think about it as we were trying to figure out which legal theory to advance our case against the college under, and free speech protection was one of them, but it certainly was not at the top of the list. So we entertained it, but the issue was so much, um, deeper than a simple protection. And, you know, really people can spot the difference very easily. There's no reason that what happened to me at Evergreen would have been any more acceptable if Evergreen had been a private college, but that changes the entire landscape surrounding whether or not it's a First Amendment violation. Um, so anyway, the basic idea is inquiry has to be allowed. We have to be able to inquire, to follow the evidence where it goes, to discuss various possibilities, some of them which may not be very nice, and not to punish and stigmatize each other for engaging in this behavior in good faith. So I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say what John Haidt said any better than he said it. He, he nailed it um, perfectly. Um, but no, this, was, this may have incidentally been about free speech. And that may have been 
a mechanism to get a court to take it seriously. But that was certainly not the, uh, the most fundamental aspect of what took place. What took place was a group of uh, uncareful thinkers decided to conduct an experiment in which they considered only what they wanted to occur and imagined up uh, false concepts to justify their attempt to make it happen and didn't want to listen to anybody uh, tell them anything that might dissuade them from conducting their experiment. You're not listening to us. I am listening. No, you're not. How can I not be listening to you? You do not control this conversation. I'm not trying to control Yes, you are. So I want to close up here with, with one final question for you. Do you think things have gotten better since last summer, since sort of the peak of your, your controversy? If you look at last academic year, it was one of the worst for campus free speech concerns on record. You had the violence at Middlebury, at Claremont McKenna, with Heather McDonald, at Berkeley. You saw the roving mobs at Evergreen. But this academic year, there hasn't been any of these strong displays of violence. Now, there might have been had places like Berkeley not spent over half a million dollars to protect Ben Shapiro's rights to speak on campus. You didn't see any university spending that amount of money to spend, uh, protect speakers last academic year. But there's been no violence. Do you think things are getting better or have colleges just gotten smart in responding to these free speech controversies? I think there are three things in play here, actually. As to whether or not it's actually getting better, I've talked to people about this, and I try to get their opinion on it before I tell them my opinion, just so that I don't, um, I don't pollute what they report back, and I can begin to, to test what the different filter bubbles might have concluded. I don't have any way of knowing what the net situation is. Certain aspects have clearly gotten better. Uh, so I would say um, Lindsay Shepard, what she was able to accomplish uh, at Laurier, was unlike what had taken place at the point that Evergreen melted down. Likewise, the pushback from students at Reed College against uh, social justice fanaticism was uh, a new phenomenon. So we are at least seeing that pushback can now happen and succeed. And I, you know, personally, I would love to imagine that people looked at what happened at Evergreen and they looked at what happened at Yale and they looked at what happened at Middlebury and these things began to add up. And so that what we're getting is the people who are somewhere in the ballpark of having the courage and the insight about how to respond are beginning to explore what responding looks like. And what I was not able to do at Evergreen, um, you know, maybe the students at Reed and Lindsay Shepard were able to do it in their institution. So that, that's progress. I do not see an increase in nuance on the other side. In fact, I was just uh, introducing a panel that included uh, Heather and James Damore and Helen Pluckrose down in, uh, in Portland. It was uh, hosted by Peter Bogosian. And the vitriol around James Damore speaking uh, at Portland State was absolutely incredible. And James Damore is the guy who wrote the Google memo and was subsequently fired from Google. Right. 
Yes. And he, you know, he, I've now met him. He is a sweet, well-intentioned, clear-headed guy. There's not a mean bone in his body. He's not a misogynist. But even though anybody who wishes to, any hour of any day, can read his memo for themselves, and they can say, well, where are the errors? Where is the misogyny? And they won't find them, you know. Are there things he could have said more clearly? Probably. But the, the fact that he is still being portrayed as a right-wing ideologue uh, who hates women tells you that this isn't about analysis. Um, so that that, you know, and in fact, protesters literally broke the sound system to prevent James Damore from speaking on campus after they had held several protest events in advance of more being on this panel. That suggests that things are still as contentious as they were. Um, so there's, there's positive, there's negative, and the net is a little bit hard uh, to say. I think that's an apt place to leave it. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad, uh, and much work to be done. So Professor Brett Weinstein, I, I thank you for talking to me, and I, I encourage you to keep up the fight. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. That was evolutionary biologist and former Evergreen State College professor, Brett Weinstein. To learn more about Brett and his work, you can visit his personal website at brettweinstein.net. And don't forget to check out last week's podcast about the Great Firewall of China, if you haven't already. Stay tuned for our next podcast, two weeks from now, which will be a debate of Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The case is before the Supreme Court right now, and it's considering whether Colorado's public accommodations law compels a business to create expression that violates sincerely held religious beliefs. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. Or if you want to call in a question for a future show, you can do so at 215-315-0100. Again, that's 215-315-0100. Just leave a voicemail. If you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed our past episodes and you want to keep hearing more of them, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Again, reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, again, I will thank you for listening. Listening.